Hello, and welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 80 with Patrick Sullivan. Patrick is a content creator for Star City Games, game designer, and former ex-pro Magic player. You can find Patrick at Basic Mountain on Twitter. Patrick has the Sullivan Satchel series, which is a weekly article on StarCityGames.com. He has Recurring Insight, which is a YouTube series of videos focusing on specific cards from a game design perspective. And last but not least, Patrick is currently co-hosting an amazing podcast called The Resleevables with Cedric Phillips, in which they go down memory lane with Magic the Gathering sets from days of yore up until the modern days. It's great listening, and uh, as you listen to our conversation, you will hear me gushing about the podcast at length. Not going to get too much into the the podcast or the contents of this episode, but I just want to say that it was truly a pleasure talking to Patrick. He is the ultimate professional. He has amazing stories, and yeah, just really enjoy this conversation. So please enjoy this conversation for Humans Magic with Patrick Sullivan. Hello, Patrick. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm really happy to be talking to you. And uh, I'm, always, I'm always happy to talk to Magic players. And before we get into any of the topics, I just want to say I've really enjoyed your recent podcasting forays. The podcast you have, The Resleevables with Cedric Phillips, has been, for me, a required listening. I've, and I've recommended it to at least five or seven of my friends. So good job. I appreciate it. It's been really fun going down memory lane. Like there, there is for talking about this stuff is very interesting for me because I remember how I felt about things at the time as a competitive player. And now, you know, my focus is much more on, on game design. And so I can look like as a retrospective at those sets through that lens, but there's still an element of like, I remembering how I felt about playing in tournaments and trying to qualify for the pro tour and all of that, that it's this weird, like middle ground for me. It's not totally in the past. It's not totally in the present. And it's just been really fun getting to sort of bounce back and forth between those two modes. Right. I, I have a sense that the two of you have a lot of fun doing it. I know it's like part of your, your role at SCG, right? It's sort of like creating content per se, but it's, it's like just doing the time travel stuff and the stories you have with, uh, upper deck (laughs) it's like there's a lot of stuff that i enjoy listening to even before you get into the set reviews and that's been like something that i don't usually listen i was talking to a friend the other day it's like usually i skip a lot of the small talk stuff with magic podcasts the first 30 minutes where they talk about oh how's it going and uh but for you guys like i i leave it on because like i just i just think you guys have great chemistry and so i'm more excited to talk to you for this because i'm a big fan of your work in that area well, I, I've, I've kind of embraced the fact that I am old by any reasonable standard when it comes to magic. And so there's like the game's bigger than it's ever been. And so that sort of implies that most of the people are relatively new. They've been playing for a couple of years. That's where like the new blood is going to come from, right? So I have this like perspective. It doesn't feel that ancient to me, 
but there's times where I talk to people where it's like, it's obvious that I'm in this like less than 1% representation of the player base. My first booster packs were revised in the dark. I played my first PTQ was like mask block constructed. Like these are just experiences that most players don't have anymore. And I think that I've, I've become more comfortable sort of embracing feeling old about it. The stories can be fun and interesting. Um, and that I have a perspective that's, you know, cause I've, I've socialized with people that are kind of in a similar space with me most of my life when it comes to magic fallen by the wayside. I live somewhere different now. And so just being like an old talking head, I've sort of uh, gotten more comfortable with it in the last couple of years. Right. But you do it in a really good way because I feel like a lot of perhaps other old talking heads are just more about yelling uphill or, you know, just, just uh, complaining about a lot of stuff. But I feel like a lot of your takes are like a little bit more constructive and or nuanced. So which is why I really enjoy, you know, some of your content. Any objective analysis of where I got into magic at what time where I grew up, how I was able to like parlay very modest tournament success into a game design internship, all of that. There's no objective analysis that would draw a conclusion other than I got extremely lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. And that's not to say like there, there is occasionally like sentiments or perspectives that are relatively new that rub me the wrong way. Like that, that does happen from time to time, but sort of undergirdling all of it is like this awareness of like how fortunate I got to grow up in New Jersey, to have a, a savant as one of my best friends when we were playing the game, who was just like incredible naturally um, to come up during the poker boom, to get an opportunity as much as I make fun of upper deck, like to get an opportunity to intern there and like actually have a shot of doing a real professional job. So I try to have some humility about it because any different break, any slight change to that story and and who knows how it ends. Yeah, for sure. When I played one of my first GPs way back, I shouldn't say way back, like it was maybe like five, seven years ago because I didn't really play competitive magic until maybe about 10 years ago. And I had traveled down to Edison, New Jersey, I think. Mm. I think I might have saw you. I might have said hi to you when you were having a smoke like uh, during rounds or something. I mean, it, it's just so long ago, but it's like, you know, for, for someone like me, I'm not really as much of a Magic World Warrior. I don't haven't played as many GPs as you. Obviously, I played in zero PTs, but that was really interesting because I didn't know until much later following your content that you're actually from there. So so I this is just totally random, but like that was the only time I've been to New Jersey and my entire impression of New Jersey is like Edison, New Jersey and that convention center. So what can you tell me about the rest of New Jersey, like, because you grew up there. So I grew up um, in uh, a town called uh, Flagtown. It's an unincorporated community inside of um, Hillsborough, New Jersey, which when I was growing up was a town of about 25,000 people. I think it's a little bit bigger now. Um, my parents moved out there in the 60s or 70s, and it was basically all farmland when they got there. Um, my grandfather uh, started having a little bit of success uh, in construction in the 70s and purchased a farm in Hillsborough and broke up uh, that farm into plots of land uh, and then started constructing houses for his seven kids. My dad's the oldest of seven uh, along this road. So there's this part of town. Uh, some of my family has moved on and 
uh, are scattered now. Some of them moved to Montana. Some of them are in San Diego. But there was a time when I was a kid where if you drove down my parents' street and then you turn left and turn down to this other street, so like this L, that every single house on the left-hand side was a, a relative of mine, an aunt or an uncle or uh, where my grandparents were living. Right. So none of this seemed weird at the time. Obviously, this is bizarre. Most people do not live like within walking distance of 20 family members or whatever it is between aunts and uncles and cousins. Yeah. So I grew up in a very rural part of New Jersey. My backyard is like where I grew up, a butts, a cornfield. Um, you know, my family was very active in 4-H as like uh, activity um, when we were kids. And so that sort of like Sopranos imagery of, you know, the smokestacks and the turnpike. That's not really where I grew up, but that's pretty close to Edison. That was my, my first like big tournament I went to was like 97 or 98. And it was at the same spot you're talking about. Oh, it was the same convention center or maybe, maybe renovated or redone since then. Well, it was uh, the Radisson Inn was where it was. The convention center is like two streets over. It's uh, that con there's like a complex of just like hotels and office buildings and convention centers by where you're talking about. But the Radisson where Harold's is that like famous deli where it's like a $30 cheeseburger and you get $30 worth of cheeseburger. That was my, that was my first like big tournament. It was type one. Cause like, I didn't, it's not like I had a powered out deck. It's just like, those are the cards I owned. Right. And I'm sitting down. I'm nervous. I, I told the story uh, recently, but I'm sitting down. I'm nervous. It's the first big tournament everyone's older than me everyone's got like power they're playing these pickup games and i'm just like was this a mistake coming out here and i hear someone from across the room scream you're a cheater get out of here i never want to see you again and uh who was that but brian david marshall who's the tournament organizer kicking someone out of the type two tournament for cheating and watching brian like take that seriously made me feel like a little bit more at ease like okay they're taking it seriously i'm not just gonna be this kid everyone just like kind of gets to roll over um but yeah that edison was like a huge part of my coming up in magic gotcha so that was one of the first people you had an impression of uh in competitive play was brian like just just uh scolding somebody telling them to get out the first person that i like saw at a magic tournament and had a memory of who was not like someone at my store or someone that i went high to high school with was brian yeah yeah, yeah. wow like i said got got really lucky Caught a for lot sure. of breaks. Like, what a person to meet right away, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, going back a little bit, like, so you basically worked on the farm, right? Or your family's farm. Like, you did a lot of uh, that type of stuff growing up then? A little bit of it. I mean, my 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 family is, like, very outdoorsy. My my father and his brothers all hunt. Like, a few of my, my aunts shoot, like, clay targets and stuff. So okay. uh, that was never for me. My dad gave up on that vision pretty quickly of me like hunting he he brought us up he bought me and my brother like without saying anything about it he just bought us like uh quads like four wheelers which i rode like maybe once wasn't really for me never was into the hunting stuff but i liked working outside um i i remember being like five six seven years old um pulling nails out of boards on houses that my grandfather was tearing down and building back up and so that I that stuff I remember very fondly, but the sort of like rural recreation, I like playing football and basketball a lot. Like that's what I spent a lot of time doing outside of playing magic. And then eventually like debate team was the thing I was doing, but the hunting, fishing, that part of it was just never resonated with me. 
can you still handle a, a rifle or a firearm pretty well? Like just if you had to, had to do that, like uh, today, I don't know if you have some like fundamentals from that, you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a slouch hitting uh, targets. I mean, I've, it's been a while since I've gone out to a range, but you know, I had a, there was a time where I had a little bit of game. Okay. So how, how early did you get into sports like uh, football and, and basketball? I'm, I, especially I'm curious about uh, just, I, I'm especially curious about how you started playing hoops. Um, so I, the first sport that I played a lot of was baseball. Uh, I played little league. I wasn't particularly good, but I enjoyed it. Um, and so for me and my friends, it was very seasonal. Like baseball was on or we were in little league and we would watch a game and then go play football. Same thing. Sundays, we'd watch the games and then we'd go outside and play in the yard. And, you know, basketball was also seasonal and basketball was really the first game that I found. Like, I want to play this even when it's not in season. Mm. Um, and it, it's, it's tough in New Jersey because like, it's really cold and snows a lot in the winter. Uh, but eventually when I was in middle school, our town got a YMCA. I got a basketball hoop in my driveway when I was about 12 and um, just started playing a lot from there. Uh, football was something like I was, I was not bad at uh, wide receiver and safety, but um, you know, my, my parents definitely didn't encourage it. They thought basketball was a lot safer. Um, and then all that sort of fell by the wayside. Once I started, you know, playing magic a lot and doing debate team, like model Congress mock trial, like I had just more aptitude for that stuff. So like why, why struggle to maybe start at shooting guard by my senior year of the varsity team when I could just be like the president of three clubs or whatever it was so <laughs> that um, yeah. the, the, the sports stream didn't go very far, but I, I loved playing uh, all sorts of sports as a kid. Oh yeah. Yeah. So what was the most interesting thing that you guys had to debate on in a debate club? Uh, it's really, um, I don't know. There was a lot of like topic du jour type of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, the model UN stuff was a lot more interesting um, because that was, you would be like, Go to a convention. Like I did a Rutgers Model Congress one year. Um, I think I did one up in Yale once. But it was like, you ostensibly are there to talk about some topic that's known ahead of time. And then they throw like some twist or crisis or emergency at the group in the middle of the convention. So then you had to like pivot and hash out. The one that I vaguely recall was like some conflict or civil war in the Sierra Leone. And then like something happened the president got assassinated or whatever in this simulated series of events and then uh you know you have to come to some sort of resolution or you know binding agreement or whatever yeah how did that did you feel like the debate experience really helped you later in life and in some way or even now kind of um i i was always really comfortable speaking in front of large groups that was never i never had any stage fright about it uh so i've always had a natural aptitude i guess for like just talking in front of cameras i've never had any misgivings about that um and there's sort of like rhetorical tricks and ways of controlling your voice that come up from time to time but there is something i don't like the feeling of it being staged mm. naturally when you're like when you're in the booth doing commentary or whatever there's going to be this element of professionalism that you try to bring to it um, you know, you're going to try to have your cadence be a certain way. You're going to try to be mindful about not repeating certain words or verbal ticks or whatever the thing is. But there's something that is for me now kind of inauthentic about talking that way. And I want to be really mindful about not overindulging that sort of thing. So it's a, a tough balancing act. It's definitely useful. Um, but I think 
you can get some bad habits there being overly performative. For sure. I've also read some studies that say that, you know, when people do debates where they pick a side in a topic, even if it's arbitrarily chosen for their side, they tend to end up having this sort of unusual level of like belief that their side is correct. And I'm wondering if like that has ever come up where like, you know, it's kind of a simulation. You were just picked uh, one side of the argument. The whole point is to like look at two sides or more, but it's like you just end up becoming so attached to your side that it becomes maybe a bit unusual. I don't wonder if that has ever happened to you in your experiences. Definitely. I mean, the biggest, the, the, the like level one way of prepping for a debate is take the opposite side or have your, your, you know, colleague take the opposite side, argue from that position, because if you can articulate like a convincing viewpoint, taking the opposite side, that means like your rhetorical devices are kind of all in check. It also is a good test for you to be aware of the counter arguments that you're going to be facing in that sort of um, structure or competition. But what was sort of like a, a early revelation, like my politics have just gotten more and more radical over the years, but one of the first inklings of like, oh, this is weird. I don't really know how to square this. Is like winning a debate, arguing the side that you actually agree with, and then winning a debate, arguing the opposite. And it calls into question, is debate like a clarifying tool for seeking truth and uh, understanding disagreements? Or is it like a skill that you can hone and bludgeon people with who do not possess the same skills? Mm. And the moments of winning debates, arguing both sides was a very like, you walk into this sort of endeavor thinking that it's a tool for clarification, for elucidating truth. And instead, it's, it, it, it turns out that it's at least partially something else. So you've trained yourself to play five-on-five five basketball and you just slaughter the other team who just started playing pickup like a week ago. And you're wondering if that actually has any meaning to it or not. Right. And so try to have your beliefs anchor, like your sense of morality, your sense of right and wrong, like let that be a guidepost. Right. You don't necessarily have to be able to explain every intuition that you possess. Your intuitions are developed by just your brain processing all these life experiences, all these things you've seen and read and felt. And it's easy to sort of like disregard that if you fancy yourself an intellectual, but there's a lot there and you should let that guide you. I'm not saying don't read. I'm not saying don't have conversations or don't try to hash out disagreements with people that disagree with you. That stuff can be valuable too, but like, the truths that you feel, those are real too. And you should not discount that because even if it's not something you can necessarily articulate. Now, not being not being super familiar with a debate format, having not been in a debate club myself, uh, what happens at the end of these debates? Is there like a judge or arbiter, arbiter that says this side, quote unquote, wins because they had better arguments? Or was it different, just like an exercise to, to get all the arguments out? Different contests sort of had different structures to them. Uh, it was common for there to be judges, um, but the way that the award w- awards were typically given out, it wasn't like a boxing match where it's like me and you, we go at it and then someone's hand gets raised. It's like we uh, discuss and draft bills and whatever over the course of two or three days of these conferences. And at the end, there's a judge that says, you're the best, you're the second best, you're the third best. 
it's not and there's not like you get a report card at the end it's just someone sort of arbitrarily keeping track that was more the more common way but i put i did do a couple of things where it was kind of in that like one-on-one sort of space where you you are being like directly graded and judged mock trial is a lot more in that space too of if they there's there's like literally a local judge that's like watching these kids do it and they they, they say yeah their team a or team b won how would you describe your political leanings? Uh, very far left, former, uh, former sort of like a milk toast liberal. You can probably go back to my Twitter feed ten years ago and find. I, if you could actually get to it, there's probably stuff in there that I would like roll my eyes out or be embarrassed about. But uh, yeah, just more and more radical over time. I guess once the dominoes start falling, you have a sense of justice or morality or you see the world through a certain lens um there's a lot of roadblocks that are put up in front of you that try to get you to rationalize the way that things are that it's like right and proper for things to be this way but once those like initial you know dominoes start to tip topple over about the injustices of the world it's really hard to shake that that sort of viewpoint sort of permeating all the experiences you see and feel and describe that's also another reason why I wanted to interview you, not because we're going to get into these political discussions, but because I've always felt looking at your socials that basically it's like there's two types of socials representation of someone's politics, like if they choose to uh, have views. One is like it's very like black and white. I am this and I am this. And if, you, if you're not me, then you're terrible and you're, you're, you're evil or you're a bad person. And I think there's you have a more like a, a nuanced view where it's like I can look at your social and I don't it makes me think and it actually makes me, it, it, it provides no like clear answers or attempts at clear answers to a lot of things. So that I, I think you and certain magic players, I, I like following your socials for that reason. And so I feel like maybe there's a little bit more like intellectual rigor in what you do because of that. I, I, I don't know. It's just, maybe it's like a, a weird feeling or projection on, on well, other people, you know? I, I think, you know, I, like I said, my politics have changed a lot in the last 20 or whatever years. And no one in my circumstances, like white, able-bodied, um, you know, straight, privileged in a number of respects, comes out of the womb as a leftist or to, to have those sort of politics. It's cultivated by experiences, by reading, by like just developing this, this sort of ideology and sense of things over time. And like I'm not a completed project. I hope that I, my politics and experiences continue to change. Like always, try to be learning and accruing new perspectives and information. But I do think that that, that sort of necessitates coming to people with uh, some sense of charity, and if not that, sort of laying questions in front of people and have them do their own unpacking. Because right. it, I'm not really in a position to be moralizing very much about this stuff because I believed a bunch of like awful or wrong things at various points i still do i'm sure i'll reflect back on my politics now in five or ten years and find gaps and blind spots so people kind of need to develop these things on their on their own terms through their own experiences and so try to trying to feed people like the question the inquiry is the thing not the answer because you can't you can't superimpose that on other people they need to develop it for themselves um or at least question things for themselves. Um, and you can't do that by pointing a finger and saying you're bad. 
Yeah. Things coming from within is definitely key. I also think that in the history of the internet, no one has ever said in a public Facebook argument, like, I'm wrong. You've given me like really good arguments. I fully admit that I'm wrong on the internet. I'm not sure that's ever happened. Maybe it has in your experience, but it's very hard for me to see that, you know? Well, I mean, it's it's a public space. And as the conflict ratchets, ratchets up, the opportunity cost for backing up or admitting that you're wrong gets higher and higher. So what I consider to be like a success is like laying out a question or giving just sort of a broad sense of my perspective and not receiving a response. Because that typically means it's like, if not that person, then at least a bunch of people are like processing, they're doing their own thinking about it. And not to say that like the goal is for them to come back and say like, oh yeah, Patrick, you were right. So like I said, it's just like cultivating a sense of like inquiry and of trying to synthesize your own experiences, but also find commonality with the experiences other people are describing and trying to like pull some truth from that. So this thing that you've described, which is sort of like, uh, you know, posing questions and having people figure out their own way. And uh, do you think this applies to magic discourse in any way? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I look back at things that I believed 15, 20 years ago, and it's like so embarrassing. Like if I thought about things better, not played more, like not, you know, whatever, but just thought about thinking the right way more. I think my pro tour career could have been a, a lot different. I was once testing, this is in San Diego. So later on, I'm testing with Ben Rubin, who's like in the hall of fame, you know, phenomenal mind. Sure. And he's talking about playing one four spike in some blue deck for reasons. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that seems bad to me. And he's like, why? And I was like, because four spike seems like the type of card you either play four copies of or zero copies of. And he looked at me like my head was spinning on my shoulders. And he's just like, you have 60 slots in your deck. You can allocate those slots however you want to. Each slot is an opportunity to toggle certain matchups or certain experiences or certain whatever, various ways. And you can very reasonably decide that you just want like the ninth one mana card. You want to have the sixth counter spell. You mm-hmm. want to have the blah card to bring the nth card to bring in against mono red like whatever don't be too prescriptive about this stuff you actually need to get in the weeds see what's going on and feel out what the parameters are and i just came at at my perspective was just so headstrong like this is what this is what you do this is how you build decks this is what a curve looks like and if i was just a little bit more open to different perspectives um i i think it, it could have been a lot different you had a different perspective than Ben at that time. Was it because you had seen success up to that point using your own lens, right? So in, in a sense, like you can't really fault yourself for that because I think one, one thing about life is that we all get to where we are based on the systems and views that we have. So it's, it's very hard to just say, what if I'm wrong, right? Exactly. I, one of my favorite expressions is practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. Now, there, is, there can be a lot of value in having your own schema and awareness of how you want to be doing certain things for sure. But uh, that that could be a trap too, because as you go along, you're winning PTQs or you're top eight in Grand Prix, you're beating players that are less talented than you. It's really easy to draw this conclusion that like, I don't have any more to learn. Um, I had nothing left to question where it's like, 
well, what if you cut out the worst 10% of your game and thought about things differently and applied it differently? But it's just hard. 22 years old. It's, a, it's like the only thing I'm good at. I'm having success. It, it's just not a good foundation for that sort of like um, self-reflection. So I got too little. I got too little of it too late. What about now? I mean, you don't have to be super specific about them, but I'm wondering if there are things about your understanding of magic now that you feel like I'm 99.9 certain that they are correct. Not anymore. Really? Uh, I think, yeah, not anymore. Uh, there's just too many smart people, too many divergent ways of, of doing it that it's, uh, I mean, there's like obvious, obvious stuff, right? Like you should play four copies of Lightning Bolt before you play any copies of Lava Spike. Sure. I'm 99.9% yep. <laughs> convinced that that is true. <laughs> sure. But I remember, I remember um, a few years ago, Matt Sperling made the uh, top eight of a Pro Tour or a World Championships and was playing Boros in Standard. And um, he had three copies of Sacred Foundry in his deck and like different dual lands. So I, eventually I read the turn report and he's like, the opportunity cost of this card, having to pay the two life was really huge. And we felt like we had enough white sources of mana for the things that we wanted to do. And we decided to cut a Sacred Foundry. And it's like, that is just so impressive to me. Like every, every bone in your body, every like just part of your lizard brain that doesn't work correctly is screaming at you that that cannot possibly be right. You're playing a red white deck in standard. Obviously you play four copies of sacred foundry. This is not in question. We don't debate it. And to go through the level of rigor that is required. Someone asked me like at the time, do you think that's right? And my response was, I'm convinced that's right because the burden of proof to do something like that is so high when your intuitions are telling you to do something different and no one's going to make fun of you if you play four sacred foundries in your red white deck, but they'll make fun of you. If you play three, like all that stuff um, to be able to get in the weeds that deep and, and draw that conclusion. So after that and these experiences and just like watching the difference in skill between me and like the actual best players. No, nah, I, I, I think it's good to question everything. That's an interesting example too, the one you have about Sperling, which is sort of like the, to me, I see it as kind of an opportunity cost self-actualization situation where maybe the deck has been tuned to such an extent that you could actually talk about cutting a sacred foundry because most players, when they're testing, they probably are concerned about the other things. Whereas maybe Matt got the other 99% stuff down where he can actually take the time and the cost to, to do that. Uh, so I see it as kind of like a, a self-actualization as well. It's like everything else is so fine-tuned to the point where now you can start to look at that because most players may not be able to even get to that level of the pyramid yet. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, for sure. And it, it's even like, so there, there's that level which you're describing, which is like the iteration has reached this point where we can actually, um, we have time to get in that level of minutia because everything else is kind of set stable. But there's another level to it, which is the like, even thinking about having that conversation, questioning right. the fourth sacred foundry is like, not, not only do you have to have the time and space for it, like you're mentioning, that's, that's true. And a lot of teams never get there in their testing process, but to even call it into question in the first place, it's just, you know, I know it's a small thing, like it's a kind of rabbit holing on this, like little bit of minutia from one tournament, but it was really this like skeleton key for me of like, being willing to question a lot of assumptions if that's the type of thing that 
calls into question and that like most teams would never even think of looking into. I think that's really cool because in a way it is magic is life, right? So, and certainly you have, you and I have both spent a, a an insane amount of time on, on magic in our lives, but it's sort of like when a black swan or a, a, an unexpected event happens, like the three secret boundaries, it kind of makes you question everything. So I think that's like, it's rabbit holing, but I think it's a cool rabbit holing, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, it's that little stuff that makes me feel like, what are all the decks I could have gone back and improved if I was willing to question everything about that was going on? But, you know, again, just never got there. No, did not have the resources for it. Didn't have the aptitude, didn't have the humility. And, you know, I don't regret like how my career went. Like I, I like I said, I, I, I've caught like the luckiest end of a million different breaks, but I do wonder if my mental approach now could go back into 22 year old me's like competitive drive and spirit and energy, like what could have been potentially. So that's interesting too. The flip side of this conversation is also the, uh, how do I put it? Survivorship bias in magic because survivorship bias is the idea that we study events that are already successful. So we don't see the other alternate reality scenarios that might've happened. So, you know, even when in your podcast, when you're talking about like invasion or what decks top aided, you know, the PT back then, like what if certain people either through skill or luck made decks like break out in a certain way. And that just totally changed the history of magic. Like because something happened in invasion, it just cascaded into how you think about subsequent cards or even how wizards like designs cards. So I, I guess what I'm saying is to turn this into a question, like how much of this stuff like three sacred foundries is also just the result of like, people doing something unusual, getting lucky, and then us creating a narrative about like, yeah, that was actually correct in hindsight because of X, Y, and Z. Uh, there's a lot there. I mean, so a, a very common pejorative that is used is results oriented and sort of a level one way of thinking about uh, gaming or just like kind of working in, in quantitative fields is divorcing the process from the outcome. That's a smart thing to do. If you uh, get your money in in a 60-40 spot in poker, you lose 40% of the time, but you're supposed to do it over and over again because in the long term, it's profitable. That sort of thing. But that can also be a, a trap too because if you've convinced yourself that your process is good, now you can wash your hands of caring about the results and still feel like uh, that you're doing the right thing. And for people who are results-oriented, Yes, that can lead to some fallacies. Yes, that can lead to some bad thinking. But at the minimum, you get someone who's, after they do poorly, reflects on why they did poorly. Maybe they aren't doing enough unpacking after they, they do something successfully, but at least they're doing some sort of um, uh, investigation after they have a bad tournament or a bad result. That sort of uh, results, results-orientedness as a pejorative uh, is like also dangerous in a different way. And it's something that traps a lot of smart people that I know. Uh, the, at, at root, like you have to unpack everything. Like in, in like in, um, you know, like sports analytics or whatever. Like, yes, ultimately the Raptors and Sixers series did come down to Kawhi Leonard hitting a shot. And if that shot rims out and they lose in overtime, everything's different. But also there's a million events leading up to the whole thing. So, you, you know, you can't focus in on one thing, but you also can't ignore the sum of the results. And so it's hard. 
like it just requires a lot of like a you know keep saying like a lot of humility to be able to keep iterating on your process try to do better but also keep in mind the possibility that you're just way off base and you might have to start from ground zero yeah now you had already mentioned you know having a lot of gratitude as far as your magic career goes and you know you had some a lot of lucky breaks and i think all good great players like they all have to have their lucky breaks but do you have any sort of I don't want to call it regret, but like, do you, do you feel like your career could have been different? Had you taken a different path or caught some like lucky coin flips or something like that? Do you, do you feel like you got completely what you deserved as a, a magic player? Or maybe we can even talk about what deserve means, but like just in your own interpretation, how do you feel about your, your career and how it's been? Um, I think I, I more or less got what I deserved. I mean, there's high leverage moments that I can point to where I got very lucky or pretty unlucky and, but like in the aggregate, I don't feel like I got particularly unlucky or lucky. It's like I've played so many games like I, like rolling one die is pretty random. Rolling 10,000 dice is not that random what the outcome looks like. Um, my to the extent that I have regrets about it, it's just like lost opportunities to work a little bit harder. Like I wanted I basically wanted to sort of like when it came to teams or came to limited, I enjoyed it. And I worked hard at it and my results were very good. Constructed, I didn't really enjoy it. I didn't enjoy the process of trying to like test and iterate on constructed decks. And keep in mind, you know, this is like 15 or 20 years ago. Magic Online isn't a thing. There's just not the same volume of tournaments. Like you were kind of starting from ground zero or close to it for a lot of the pro tours. Right. And if I just had a better work ethic and took it more seriously, I think, I, I mean, I know I would have had better results those were huge leaks in my game that I could have just plugged up by working harder, but I had a lot of fun with it. I met a lot of like really cool people, people I'm so close with. And like you said, you do like, you don't get the counterfactual. Like if I was more driven, uh, if I was more of a hard ass about who I was testing with or what the circumstances were or whatever, yeah. uh, does that come at the sacrifice of human relationships? Does that come at the sacrifice of how, people perceive me you know you don't you don't ever get to see what the other side of it is so at the end of the day i got very lucky with how everything played out i wish i had you know one pro tour top eight you know a grand prix win uh you know a fifth grand prix top eight so i and one constructed to go with the limited ones i would feel good about it but i don't really have any regrets and and don't feel like i got certainly don't feel like i got unlucky at the end of the day Yeah. And I think in a lot of ways, I can only infer for you so you can validate this, like having the respect of your peers is like just as if not more important than those accomplishments, right? Definitely. And I always had, I've I've had this interesting experience where like at every level, talking about like middle school, playing with friends to like through local regional tournaments, Grand Prix, Pro Tours, whatever. I was always one of the worst players in my group. Always. Um. And so I have, I've always had this, you know, I I know it's like a played out thing, but like the uh, imposter uh, worries about, you know, imposter fear of imposter. What am I thinking of? Imposter syndrome. Like you're not good enough. Yeah. Right. I've always had that because I've just never been the best player in a group that I was playing with. Um, And so the sort of pivot in my career to like, yeah, I'm not like God's gift to actually playing magic, but I have a perspective. I can do the design stuff. I can be, you know, elucidate things in commentary that people find enjoyable, whatever. 
that feels like a good end to things. Like yeah. it, it's actually leveraging the stuff that I was, was good at and always felt comfortable with myself with. Hopefully you don't take this analogy the wrong way, but it's like, it reads to me as if like you got into D3 basketball or something. Yeah. You're not, you're not playing for Duke. You're not playing in the final four, but I mean, you're like better than 99% of the world or America, like at basketball, just by being there. Right. And the way I hear you talk about magic, just, it just blows my mind. It's just like, to me, there's like a sports analogy. It's like, yeah, we're all kind of like bouncing the ball and trying to put it into the hoop, but it's like, your level of understanding is just so like far beyond like someone who just started playing basketball last week that it's, it's like, it's not the same game, you know? Oh, I mean, I, I, I was at college for one year um, at Seton hall university and I had an opportunity to play a little bit of pickup very sporadically, not, not common, but with, with Eddie Griffin and Samuel Dallenbear. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Eddie yeah. Griffin. He was at Seton, Seton Hall. Yeah. Dallenbear. Yeah. He passed away. Unfortunately, Samuel Dallenbear, I, I think retired a few years ago, but yeah. like you have no idea what the, what these people are like going at one tenth speed where they're really just focusing on not getting hurt. Yeah. Any idea what these, what, what it takes to like play at that, that level. It's like astounding. And mm-hmm. then to, to watch like, how ridiculous someone like LeBron James or who, you know, pick the player can make those players look. It's like, what's the skill ceiling here? It's like, it's, right. it's like, it, it's, it's hard for me to get my head around with the very limited exposure I've had to like playing basketball with players that good of like, what is it like to be that much better than those guys? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. And if you're playing pickup basketball, we're trying to improve at that game. You hope you're playing with Eddie Griffin and, Samuel Dallenberg every game, right? Because that's how you're going to have these huge level ups, I would expect. Yeah. And I mean, the last Pro Tour I played at was uh, Dragon's Maze. And, you know, I got very fortunate to get to test with the Channel Fireball people. But, like, yeah, I had that experience all over again playing with Luis and Paulo and the rest of those people. Just like, I know I'm not bad at this by like any objective standards, but these people are making me look really bad. Um, but fortunate, hopefully, this is just getting good reps for the Pro Tours and my opponents aren't going to be as good as these people are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So switching gears a little bit, how would you describe your basketball game? Like, how would you describe in your in your prime, in your peak? I know that compared to your wife, you're basically LeBron. You had you had said that in a yeah. in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> more athletic, a little bit more athletic. But uh how would you describe your B ball game? I think that my my NBA comp at my peak, I think Eric Gordon is a good stylistic comp. Um I don't I don't play very much in the, I think Austin rivers is also a fine stylistic comp. Like I don't play that much at the foul line. I like can shoot threes and I can put a shoulder down and get to the rim. And so I've, I've had sort of like the, the pre analytics, like optimized shot chart pretty much my entire life. Um, I, um, I operate okay out of the pick and roll. I'm not, I'm not the most natural, like uh, uh, the biggest leak that I've ever, I've had in my game is just like, the inability to cross over while moving. Mm-hmm. And so there's just some limitations. If you, if, if a pick comes and you like the, their defender kind of gets over the top of you, if you can't cut back or split, there's just a cap to like what you're capable of doing. And I could just never get to that level of coordination, but I had a couple of rec basketball seasons where like we weren't tracking, but like, I'm sure I shot over 40% on threes. Yeah. Um, 
I, I probably had like one 50, 40, 90 season or whatever playing <laughs> again, you know, against like guys who worked out all the time. I mean, not good basketball players, but like right. people right. who are in shape in shape around. Yeah. I, I noticed you mentioned rivers and uh, Gordon. So does that mean that you're like not a three and D, but you're like a three? Is that is it like on the defensive side where you like, were you a gritty guy or, or what? How would you describe? Um, I would describe myself as a, a very sturdy post defender. Um, but not the most agile or intuitive off the ball. Okay. Like almost every, every, almost everyone's decent guarding someone when their person has the ball. Yeah. Like you're not, you're trying to like not get embarrassed when your person has the ball, that's where you're paying attention. I think the real mark of how someone defends is what's going on when they're play, when they're the person they're guarding does not have the ball. Right. Um, that's something where this is another like analog to magic or whatever, but like if my head if I had my head now in like my 29 year old body or whatever, it would be very different. Yeah. Like my awareness of like, you know, next order consequences of where things are going to go. But like, there's sometimes where I tell my body to like cut to the right and it just doesn't <laughs> like, just like something disconnects between my yep. brain and my leg. <laughs> so what's the magic equivalent of like over-focusing on blocks as opposed to like help defense? Cause I know that in the NBA, the analogy is that, you can't just look at someone like Evan Turner who has a lot of blocks per game and say he's a defensive player of the year or he's a, or even that he's a good defender because like positional defense is now things that things that people look at. So what is like the magic equivalent of a I don't want to say empty stat but like something like blocks where it's like we look at that too much and we 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 think that's that means something when it when it doesn't. Um uh, so I think I don't know if this is exactly the right comparison or the um the uh, the right comp, but something I've been focusing a lot more on in the last two years, let's say, um, building decks and playing is winning games on the draw. That to me is like the that's the the thing to unlock, especially in like powerful formats like modern and like Legacy Beyond. A lot of games where you're on the play take care of themselves. Like the games are over so fast, the 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 advantages you get that are really easy to leverage. So I'm trying to work a lot more on card selection and playing to win games that are going second yep. because like that, that's, that's the hard part. And it's like having this, the point is not to, to like the goal from my perspective, what I'm working on now is, and it's, it's like a little reductive, but it's the find the way to win the games that you otherwise would have lost. Right. It's like, where 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 are you eking out the extra three four five percent? Because like a lot of wins, they're just autopilot. Almost any magic player of a reasonable skill level can get there, but plugging in the gaps, uh, either with play or with like when you're disadvantaged structurally, like going second in a bad matchup, that's like that's that's a big thing I'm trying to unlock right now. Do you think that's the thing that separates the Hall of Famers in Magic from the people who are really good but not there? I think it, it that's part of it. But I think it's more of like, so magic's really complicated and there's a lot of room to like make mistakes inside of games. And as you get better and better, you reach a point where it's like pretty rare to do something boneheaded. There's a lot of like plays on the margins where it can be, it's reasonable to disagree, but how much of that actually comes, like actually is determining outcomes of games, like what percentage of the time, it's not that frequent. And you can fall into this trap of, well, I was playing well, and that's all you can do. And if you lose, then you caught some bad breaks or the matchup was bad and whatever. But it doesn't unpack the deck selection process. 
It doesn't unpack the sideboarding process. It doesn't unpack how you're playtesting. Like it's a really lazy way of analyzing your game, but it's the thing that's in front of you. And, and it's the thing that's like the hardest thing to kind of level up with. Um, so having the, again, this like the humility and rigor to go back and unpack all of it. Like, uh, am I sideboarding in a way where like a common one for me is like people having molten rain in their sideboard of red decks for Tron. And it's like, that only works if you're going first. And if you're going first, you already have the advantage. Like, so why are you spending all this equity on stuff that only helps you in the good spot and doesn't help you in the bad spots? Um, but a lot of people just have this default of like, yeah, I just blow up at a land. It's good against Tron, you know, but it's like not actually changing the inflection point of winning or, or losing very much. So it's a win more card or a win more strategy. Yeah, it's it's just not that you need to turn the losses into wins. That's the thing that you actually need to be doing. It's not having a card that's just like ostensibly good some amount of the time, but biases towards games where you're already advantaged. Are there people that come to mind when we talk about that, like just turning losses into wins? Who comes to your mind for it? Mark Herberholz comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, Eugene Harvey. Yeah. Um, I think Osa Blavidovich, uh, he was like a workhorse. He like when he was locked in, when he won that pro tour, the top eight surrounding it, like he worked so hard and a lot of it was committed to like, all right, we got where we got, we got what we got. It's foundationally sound. What are the, what are the problem cars and problem matchups? How do we like plug in the last few holes? And it, it's one of those like 90% of the time is spent doing 10% of the work. And then 10% of the time is doing 90%. That, that like last 10% was so much of it. Um, and there, it's easy to just be like, oh yeah, he was playing well, uh, and winning, but like, there's so much work that happened before this, they sat down for pairings and, um, you know, he was, he was phenomenal at that. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I asked you a while back to describe your basketball game, but if you had to play like high stakes basketball with like it could be you or four other players or just five other players. Like if you have to assemble the ultimate magic, the gathering basketball team to win a game, a match of basketball, who would you pick and why? So we got to lay out a couple parameters here. We got to say primarily known as a magic player, not a basketball player who happens to play a little bit of magic because um, I don't know if you know uh, Thomas Herzog. Oh yeah, yeah. He he plays Maverick in Magic, but he's really a D one. He was a D one basketball player. No? He was at Michigan State. That's like one of the most prestigious basketball college. So like we kind of had to ex- like sure. He would let's be my number. Someone like him. Yeah, yeah. Of course you're gonna have him. If, if and and if I if I get to have these people at their reasonable peaks, like it's yes. not a bunch of forty year old me and my friends. Not not, not now. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna ask you to say Patrick Sullivan now. Like you could pick yourself, but uh, but yeah, some people in their peaks at different times. It's okay. I think my starting five, assuming that I had to be on there, let's let, let's get rid of the awkwardness of choosing whether or not I get to be on the ultimate five. And let's just say for the purposes of this, the my team that I'm assembling is Craig Krempels, Matt Place, John Sonny, Marshall Sutcliffe. OK, uh, let's start with Marshall. What's his game like? And uh, Mass- I, mean, I know he's tall. He still plays basketball, right? He still plays. Yeah, I mean, I, I played with him at a Grand Prix a few years ago. I don't know how active he's been during COVID, yeah. but he is like, 
he is a monster. He is big and strong and fast. He can shoot. We played at Grand Prix Detroit with like me just me and him running like really simple pick and rolls. And it was just like someone had an open shot or a layup every single time. Like he's okay. just he's very skilled and very athletic. Um, okay. uh, I don't know if he can dunk, but like I would imagine it's like very likely. Um, John Sonny, uh, who's like a real heads no sort of old New Jersey pro, had one pro tour. He had a team top four finish. Uh, and that was like his big one, but he was like top 32 to million pro tours in a row was on the train for a long time. His game, I think, um, Hmm. Who's his comp? Cause he was like very, he wasn't much of a three point shooter. He was very foul line in, but he was like lethal going to the, he could slash the rim, had a good handle, really, really nice jumper. Not that much range, but like really nice jump shot. Uh, Matt place can, and, really and he shoot, could could, really he, could he bang inside? Is that is he's yeah got, yeah okay? He had a little post. He could go down. He could go on. The, he could go down the block. He could face you up from the foul line. Okay. Um, he could more just, like he it's more like the nineties two thousand NBA game. Maybe like a big baby Davis. He could like do some stuff inside and in the mid range. Yeah yeah yeah. Um, and had a nice like good slasher, good rebounder. Um, Matt Matt Place. Um, just like really good three and D guy with some handles and just a plug and play, just like could put him anywhere. Right. Major value add smart. And then, uh, Kremples was my like target point guard. I, I guess his comp is probably, uh, Andre Miller comes to mind. Okay. Like comfortably, comfortably below the rim, but like really heady, good passer. Um, you know, could go down on the block a little bit, mm-hmm. nice little bank shot, little fade away, a little fall away, just like, just, just dependable, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just a rock solid, never does anything stupid. Um, and and yeah, that's my squad. Okay. Okay. I was just curious. Um any of the new generation play basketball? I have no idea. Like you've got all guys from like, you know, who've been in MTG for a while, right? Uh yeah, I know. I so I played uh SCG tour, played some pickup games here and there, but that still biases towards like kind of an older demographic. Yeah. Uh Jim Davis was nice. He had some game physical yeah. um the was more of a hockey people. player but i'm sure he could translate that to basketball right yeah i mean you know it's like i mean he's coordinated he lifts weights like that's a lot <laughs> that's like a good it's a good starting point you know yeah. um trying to think who is not who else was nice that i played with on the scg i mean jim was jim was the nicest one i played with steve rubin had a little bit of game okay uh he, he was he, he surprised me a little bit yeah. the roanoke people are playing a lot they post a lot on twitter and uh, i uh, i heard them talk about it in that. that other podcast and i'm wondering if like you would just like in your prime you would just you guys would just smoke them or what it, it would be messy i mean it now who knows it's you yeah. know i'm it, it i'm on the the wrong side of the aging curve you know but oh yeah no t- 10 years ago it would have been a bloodbath but who knows now? Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe it'd be okay we'll find out one day We'll find out one day, yeah. Okay. Now, at the risk of this becoming a, a basketball podcast, I, I really want to know how you got into the Clippers. Because now I have full confirmation that you did not grow up in LA. You mm-hmm. grew up in Jersey. So explain the – and I went and looked at all of your um, your your uh, SCG videos recently where you, you, you filmed yourself wearing a Clippers sweat, sweatshirt. So how, explain the Clippers fandom for me. All right, so grew up in New Jersey. I was a Nets fan. Yeah. Uh, was very fond of the early 2000s, like Darius Miles, Quinn Richardson, Corey Maggette, Elton Brand, 
like that sort of collection of players. Uh, the Nets moved to Brooklyn, which yep. I know in geographical terms is not um, that far, but New Jersey and Brooklyn is like, might as well be a different planet. Like it's just a totally different thing, even if it's like 30 miles away or whatever. So the Nets moved to Brooklyn. I moved to Southern California uh, and there was no way I was going to be a Lakers fan. They beat the Nets <laughs> in the finals and, you know, they've won 15 titles or whatever. It's just right. not, can't jump on. Yeah. So I left the Clippers um, and I spent a lot of time watching the the Marcus Camby, Zach Randolph, Baron Davis era in person mm-hmm. and was a, a season ticket holder for Blake's first year through, um, you know, I think four years I was there, at, like almost all the games, but yeah. uh, I don't, I don't get to catch it as much as I used to, but still love it and really excited for the playoffs. Okay. I got to say that makes you a real fan. If you got into the Clippers in the two thousands and especially pre uh, pre Blake and pre CP three, like that, you got to be a real fan to like, really like get into it at that time. I watched some brutal basketball. I watched some absolute brutal basketball. Yeah. I had one really good experience where I was at uh, Nets Clippers and the Nets starting lineup is being announced and they call out E Ian Leon who was starting for the Nets at the time, uh-huh. uh, who was like a, you know, a very high draft pick, but career in the NBA didn't really go particularly far. Mm-hmm. And I hear someone behind me talking to the person next to them and uh, goes, you know, this kid's going to be really good. He just needs a little bit of time to develop. Sure. And I, I, I start wheeling around. And I go, that dude is a scrub. And I look and it's the Nets general manager. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, was it uh, Lawrence Frank or whoever it was at the time? Rod Thorne. Oh, Rod Thorne. Yeah, Lawrence Frank is a coach, right? Yeah, right, right. It's pretty embarrassing. Yeah, pretty embarrassing. Wow, wow. Well, I mean, isn't it kind of embarrassing that he said that out loud in the first place? Uh, he was he was with some like business partner or someone he was like trying oh, to impress okay. yeah, or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't okay. like at the game with a friend. It was like yeah. some business meeting that I interject myself into. But that was like the sweet thing about the Clippers was like, yeah, I was sitting. In, I had better seats than the Nets GM, and I paid sixty dollars. Like it was yeah. just you could just be right at the bench for for nothing. But at, during Lob City, it was a little bit of a harder ticket, but yeah. still easier than the Lakers. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I, I man, Lakers have so many. I mean, Clippers have had so many ups and downs, but I still remember like having like a an old issue of Slam Magazine with Lamar Odom on the cover when he was drafted for the Clippers. Man, that was like that was a really promising era that didn't quite turn out the way it did, but. Uh, they're good now right so right i got a mitchell and nest t-shirt of a slam cover of it might be the same one yeah but it's uh darius miles lamar odom and alton brand and they have like each other's jerseys on reversed um but that was like an early 2000s cover yeah slam was so sweet that magazine was awesome i i remember that cover for slam with the three of them man they were going to be the future so at the risk of like talking too much about myself, like I, I got into the Bulls seriously in the 2000s. And it was also like the dark ages of the Bulls where they had like the baby Bulls, Tyson Chandler, Eddie Curry. And so I consider myself to be a true Bulls fan because I didn't get into the Bulls when it was like MJ in the 90s. It was so it'd be so easy to do that. Um, so I'm a bit of a hipster when it comes to like the NBA fandom as well. And then, and then of course, I followed the Bulls all through the 2000s until now. So I'm very, very up to date on it. You, you might appreciate this. When I was playing rec league ball, I had the jersey that I wore was uh, authentic, like stitched, like the expensive kind. Kirk Heinrich Bulls jersey. Kirk is one of my favorite Bulls of all time. Man. Yeah. If you want so, someone to have your back, like in a game, when a fight breaks out, 
I think he leads the the Bulls all time in like three point attempts blocked, uh, as in being blocked, <laughs> which yeah. is a fun stat that nobody knows about. But I uh, mean, Kirk has got to be in my top five Bulls of all time. Yeah, he's another just like yeah, that's another good Craig Kremples comp. Just like steady, steady hand. You know, it doesn't blow you away on any one dimension, but like just doesn't make mistakes, gets people in their spots, shoot yeah. a little bit. Kerr was yeah. nice. He was nice. Nice, nice. All right. So, um, yeah. So, what, what's your prediction on how the, how far the Clippers will go this postseason? I th- I I know this is going to be like whatever, but I believe they are going to win the whole thing. My finals my my finals prediction is Clippers over Bucks in seven. I can believe the Clippers in the finals, but I'm not sure about the Bucks. But uh, it's interesting. Interesting. I put a lot of I put a lot of value in in continuity. I think uh, Milwaukee's appreciably better, even if the regular season wasn't that astounding. Just because like Drew Holiday is such a massive upgrade over Bledsoe. Yeah. And I worry that the Brooklyn people haven't played enough together to defend well and figure out their rotations. I yeah. think they have the personnel to match up with Philly, and there's no other team in the East that I consider like a legit threat. I'm also a huge Brooklyn hater, um, but really more because <laughs> I, I sense like injury risk and other things going on this postseason. And uh, I can't stand KD, but that's, that's like, I try to be an objective sports fan. Like I'm not trying to let my hatred of certain players like get in the way, but I, I do think that, yeah, the Bucks have a good shot. Now, do you think Leonard is an MVP candidate this season? Hasn't played enough games. I, my, I think, uh, my top four, if I had a ballot would be in order, um, Jokic, Curry, uh, Doncic, Giannis. Yep. The fifth slot. I think there's a lot of very reasonable cases. Kawhi could be among them. I think Dame, Chris Paul, Joel Embiid, like, you know, there's a lot of good candidates, but that, that top four, I feel pretty pretty firm about if Kawhi played 72 games or, or 70 games at this production, I still, I, I think I would probably have him at number three, the way that he played, but right. so many guys have had incredible seasons and the missed time really matters. I, I think you're not wrong. I think Jokic is like the, the clear favorite to, you know, when I look at these awards it's kind of like who will win and who should win. I really feel like he meets the criteria for both. I mean, this is one of the greatest offensive seasons in NBA history. Like this is like unprecedented and um, you know, that Jamal Murray went down. They didn't miss a beat or very you know, a lot of that has to do with Porter's emergence, but still, I mean, I, I thought they were sort of dead in the water once Murray went down and they, uh, you know, I still am, am bearish on their playoff odds. I, I think losing that kind of weapon is, is yeah. a huge deal, but um, yeah, to, to me, I know Curry season has been phenomenal and the highlights are incredible and whatever, but I think Jokic is the statistical case is just overwhelming. Right, right. So you you think the the Clippers will have a pretty they'll have the edge over the Nuggets should they face each other in the playoffs? I mean, it's it's like still a little shook after last year. Um, yeah. And I don't want to be too. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. I have an NBA Magic chat with a bunch of my friends, and mm-hmm. when the when that round two matchup went, um, because uh, um. Denver and Utah played a game seven. So it was like not clear who the Clippers were going to play. And um, when Denver won, I was like, I really don't like this matchup. We don't have the the right people to guard uh, Jokic and just X, Y, and Z. And my friends were just like, come on. Like the talent Delta is just like too huge. Like this is mm-hmm. not going to be competitive. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Nuggets came back and won that one 
game seven was catastrophic. I, I, I mean, I'm wary about it, but I still feel pretty comfortable if it gets, if it, if it got to that point. Yeah. And Michael Porter Jr. is going to be the wild card, right? Like I think the postseason, he's going to be a very important player if he isn't already just, just like, I don't know. He could either go off or he could just be a complete dud. I don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. Well, I mean, when the games grind down, like uh, as much as people want to make fun of the mid range or say that it's dead, it's like when defenses lock in, you just don't get good shots. Yeah. And a lot of what the playoffs come down to is just like, do you have someone who can go get you a bucket? And two years ago, that was Kawhi for the Raptors. Last year it was Jimmy for the heat. Yeah. Just like how much of the offense in the last two minutes was just like, get out of this, get out of this dude's way, you know? Um, and I don't know if Porter's quite at that level yet. Like he does, he does like generate a lot of his own offense, but it's not really like pound the ball and make a move. It's like, mm-hmm. you can sort of just pull up and shoot. That stuff gets harder to pull off late in games, but Jokic can be that player. You can just give him the ball at the foul line, have him go to work. For sure. And uh, I also feel like Paul George gets a bit of a bad rep because like, he gets uh, lambasted for what he says on social and what he's said publicly. But I also think that last year was tough for everybody in the bubble. So it's like, you know, it's like, if you're going to, if you're going, if he, if he's been so open about like the difficulty of playing in the bubble last year, you also can't really rag on him too hard for, I mean, it's sports. Of course you can rag on people for not performing, but I I have a feeling that he's going to play a little bit better this postseason is what I'm trying to say. He's, he was phenomenal this year. Like Kawhi missed so much time. Uh, Paul was super reliable. He was one of the best two-way players in the league this year. His shooting spreads are just like off. He was he was incredible. I mean, there there was a point halfway through the season where I'm like, why is Kawhi getting all this MVP chatter? And no one's talking about Paul George. I, I'm not even sure that Kawhi's the best player on the team right now. Yeah. Um, he cooled off a little bit, but he he's been he's been just outstanding this year. All really right. really good. Okay, I'm going to try to bring it back because I we probably lost half our listeners now talking about the NBA. So let's go back to talking about games and, and magic. So uh, switching gears again, Patrick, are most high levels of competitive games good game designers? Why or why not? Uh, they are not. Uh, one is just the, there's only so many good people out there. So it's not like an indictment of pros specifically. It's just anyone's going to be a pretty low probability bet. Uh, but I think the specific thing that you're kind of speaking to is like, why would a pro tour player make or not make a good game designer is uh, a lot of uh, playing magic or any game competitively is like figuring out how to win, optimizing for that experience and having the feeling of being a player, trying to win, seeing your opponent as an enemy, blah, 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 blah. Games, don't work that way. Uh, and this is like a, a, a reductive way of explaining it. But a lot of times when I talk to like relatively new hires, I'm like, this is the thing that I want you to think about. In spite of each game having one winner and one loser, some games are more popular than others. Start thinking about why that is. And a big thing is protecting the experience of the person who is losing. How, like if we all agree that winning is sort of intrinsically fun, uh, we don't have to worry that much about optimizing the experience for the person who is winning. We have to be very concerned about the person who is losing, especially the person who is repeatedly losing. What makes this experience fun? What makes them want to come back to that? And that is a perspective that uh, competitive play is basically antithetical to. So 
some people can get it. Some people can be trained, but the like crucible of competition is not ideal for forging what I consider to be like the, the optimal perspective for a game designer. Or to put it this way, like a lot of high level, let's just take magic as an example. Like a lot of high level magic players, they are effectively gluttons for punishment, right? Like they learn to pick themselves up through repeated losing to people who are better than them. You have said that, you know, sometimes you felt like you might've been like the worst player in the room and you guys just have a certain mindset to just pick yourselves up. Whereas maybe like 80% of the the gaming world isn't like that, right? They just kind of like, just say F this, I'm going to go play another game, right? There's that. And there's also the like, once you get to a certain level of competition, you are basic, you are more about an organized play customer than you are a game customer. Uh, and I know this because when I was playing competitively, even when formats were horrible, I didn't care because I was just trying to win the PTQ, trying to cash the Grand Prix, whatever the thing is. You deal but, with the chips that you're dealt, right? Exactly. Yeah. But like, obviously, a lot of uh, human beings who are not that uh, immersed in it, who have other alternatives for their time and money, check out, do something else if the games aren't fun. Yeah. And so, like you, you know that the the way that your brain gets wired the things that you care about and optimize for as a competitive player um you need to have some rewiring to be able to design games effectively i think now let's say that you're hiring a designer right uh let's say you're the hiring manager how do you assess that ability in potential candidates like essentially whether or not they have that empathy or like being like able to have an out of take yourself out of your shoes and design for like maybe someone other than themselves. I mean, just get them to, t- I, I mean, sometimes when I've been in these sort of interviews, it's like the, um, like the debate history sort of comes back to me where it's like, okay. okay, tell me about the things that you enjoy and don't enjoy about games and then make them argue the other side of it. What's the other perspective to this sort of thing? What are the pros and cons of mana screw mana flood? What are the pros and cons of having four ofs? Because it's it's very rare that these decisions are just like right or wrong. It is uh, on a spectrum. It's about like the distribution of all possible outcomes. It's about iterating over time. And so when I'm talking to candidates, it's not like, are they giving the right answers? But more, are they thinking about these problems the right way? Because anyone off the street, like my opinion is it takes at least six months. Even if the candidate seems good, before they're not like actively derailing the process because there's just so much you have to unlearn, especially if you come from a competitive background. Uh, So what they know or think they know is a lot less important than how they think about things. So how how does one balance confidence versus self-doubt or doubt for this? Uh, You need to be constantly checking in um, and so it was funny at, at a place I used to work with at, at Cryptozoic, someone, uh, Matt Place was there at the time. He worked on magic for a long time, design lead, super senior person, came down to work with us. And someone who was very junior in a meeting said, you know, who was disagreeing with Matt about something said, I'm sure, blah, 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 whatever. And Matt goes, you haven't been doing this long enough to be sure about anything. When you're actually sure for the fir- for the first time, you'll know. It was like, whoa, <laughs> like maybe that's like a maybe that's not something you're supposed to say to a coworker or whatever. But wow, is that like a way of of framing it? Like you haven't been doing this long enough to even know, had to even have a sense of when you're sure about something or not. 
So I think the biggest thing is like, write things down, make predictions, go back and check in. Mm. A thing that can happen um, uh, on a lot of design teams for TCGs is like, people have their guesses about what's going to be good, what's going to be bad. Right. The set comes out. It's different than what they what people expect. Um, but then you're just working on the next thing. And as long as nothing has to get banned or the metagame's not disastrous, it's like, okay, whatever, fine, we'll move on. I think there's a lot of value in everyone in the room, write down one month after this set comes out, what do you think are going to be the five best decks in standard? What are gonna what's gonna be the mythic rare in the set that's gonna have the most value on the secondary market? Stuff like that. Not with the intent of like grading or judging people, but to be like, do we have systemic leaks? Are we over or underestimating certain things over and over again? Mm-hmm. And maybe we can start to identify some patterns um, uh, with our process here if we see where the disassociation is between what we're assuming is going to happen and what ultimately happens down the line. Uh, read your old emails. Go back, spend, a, spend an hour a month Go into your inbox and check your set emails from a year ago. If that doesn't engender some humility in you as a game designer, you are not being honest with yourself because you're just going to be wrong constantly. So how does one manage to do that as an organization when there's just so much um, pressure to just keep cranking out new designs and new cards and go on to the next project, right? And also like, is the is the system itself just inherently flawed? I guess is the implied question. It's not. It's not flawed. You're just operating in a space where it's ambiguous, where it's impossible to predict all outcomes. And so, what you're, the process needs to be is instead of sitting around and convincing ourselves that we're certain about what the outcome is going to be, which we're not, and is, and if we are certain, it means the the creative space is small enough that the public's going to figure it out in seconds. If we can figure it out ourselves in a matter of weeks. Um, making smart bets, analyzing uh, when this goes, if we're debating whether we want this card to be like one of the most powerful cards in the set or not, how frequently does this go right? And what do the worlds look like when it's right? Um, And how frequently does it go wrong? And what do the worlds look like when it goes wrong? And stop arguing about whether or not you're right or wrong, because we don't know. It's ambiguous. A thing that Matt Place drilled into me, he's like, this is a thing that comes up all the time. You gotta, you gotta fight this. If you're in a room and you're debating a card like that, and five people think it's fine, and five people think it's not fine, and the call to action is go back and play some games, we'll talk again in a, in a few days. And then after that. The room has changed. Now six people think it's fine and four people think it's not fine. Just just by virtue of time having passed or just like, because they haven't or been the, testing, right? Or, the, or they, built, they built a new deck and now, okay. right? or they've, they changed something else in the file, like whatever. Someone's opinion has been swayed mm-hmm. into now thinking that this is an okay thing to do. So now you're six to four. It's very common to be like a, a, a very like common fallacy is to go, okay, majority rules and also... Uh, since we've updated, it's moved in the direction of it's fine. But if you keep doing that, you screw up 40% of the time. So you actually have to, it's not just about the uh, who's, are more people convinced it's right or wrong. It's when it goes right the 60% of the time, assuming that's accurate, what does that world look like? And how bad does it go when it's wrong the 40% of the time? That's actually the conversation you need to have, not have this like majority vote 
all right, yeah. 51, 49. So I guess we're doing it. Um, but it's very common for inexperienced teams or yeah. even experienced teams really to fall into that, like 51 to 41, 49. Yeah. Mindset. Or experienced teams facing like a lot of pressure with time or something to make a decision. And so you can shortcut to it. But I, I think what you're saying is like, just controlling for like a range of outcomes. It's, it's like, it's like the EV of that decision. It's, it's more important than like, just having easy validation that today 70% of people or 60% said it's okay. So the crowds is okay. So let's go with it. Yeah. So like, uh, let's say that um, you're worried about like all in red or white aggro being too good. Mm -hmm. It is. uh, And let's, let's say it plays fine. It's fun. You're just worried that maybe the decks are too powerful. A very common thing to do. And in my opinion, most of the time, a big waste of time is to go into a room and argue like, uh, is the deck too powerful or not? And if we believe it's too powerful, what are the offenders? And if we've identified the offenders, what do we change about those cards? That is like a really uh, inefficient process with a bunch of error bars. And it's like, instead, can we just put an infest and a ratchet bomb in the file and like call it a day? And if the deck is like powerful, at least we've put in some like very obvious backstops to it that people can go to. And maybe it's like not enough, but like that's so much more efficient than the arguing about which one drop we should turn into a two one from a two two and who even knows if that matters right it's like so ambiguous um so just like be having humility about the things that you can know and can't know and then just trying to make like wise bets and backstops to insulate yourself from the downside risk of the things that could go wrong let's pretend that we live in the matrix and uh any magic player, whether it's kitchen table or competitive, can instantly download all the things you described as of being a designer. Like overnight, I could just like say, I know, I know karate or I know judo, I know game design, right? Or to the extent that you've described it, do you think magic would be a better, worse or same world with that? If everybody had that information or empathy or something? Worse because I think the, like I have my own blind spots too. I, I'm like, I'm not sitting here trying to be like not both not uh suggest that i have a level of mastery that other people don't or suggest that there's only one way to do it Mm -hmm. and i think the process is just enriched by different perspectives um it's like a creative it's a creative endeavor it it's a game that serves millions of people for all sorts of different reasons and even if someone is like let's if we're grading out right is maybe wrong more frequently than i am but we can collaborate to protect ourselves from our blind spots. And as a benefit, we get all these different perspectives and ways of doing things and, and, and different sources of inspiration. Like that to me is so much of a better world than just like, yeah, we have like 12, we have a Sentinel factory and we just like crank these Sentinels out. What about in terms of just soft skills? Cause you had mentioned, you know, designers in a room debating, I would expect that those who are like more persuasive than others or better at developing, you know, lunchtime relationships with people probably have a better uh, odds of getting their ideas heard or, or passing. So like how important is, are the soft skills in being a designer? Because on the one hand, you can kind of look at it as like, this is really meritocratic, but I think in the, in the real world doesn't quite work out that way. So does that, does that like, can you speak to that a little bit? Um, I think, what you're describing is, is definitely true. I've seen it firsthand uh, countless times. And really that's why there's like a burden on management to be how it is, uh, to, 
that's where like a lot of the best game design managers come in, which is like the goal is to bring out the best in everyone. It's not about scoring points or winning the arguments. And so you are right that people who are maybe less expressive, maybe more introverted, maybe who haven't cultivated some of those relationships uh, feel uncomfortable disagreeing with the consensus in the room um, or raising something that they think other people might not care about or whatever. But that's why the, there's a burden on management to, to level that playing field. Have you developed like uh, fallacies or wrong heuristics yourself where it's like you just basically like uh, this is definitely a leading question, but like you, this person has gotten it right a lot of times in the past or he's respected because he's Patrick Sullivan. So I tend to just take him or her at on the surface, like I'll, I'll, I'll more readily agree with him or her because of that. Definitely. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, once you've, once you've have a senior title, you've, you've cultivated some experience, you're like some sort of like F plus celebrity in your sphere or whatever. Yeah, for sure. And that's why like, uh, you know, the, again, the, there's like a burden on um, people in a senior position to like, you have to listen, even if it's not, even if it's not like we're, we're, de- we're not taking a vote. Like at the end of the day, the people that are in a leadership position are there for a reason. They have to make the calls. We're not voting on what we're going to do, but people can still have good insights. And the, also the only way that uh, newer designers are ever going to level up is through that process of conversation, of experiencing these things, of seeing um, positive and negatives uh, of consequences from decisions fall out. And so you have to like groom that, even if it's not the most efficient thing. What's your proudest achievement as a game designer? There's a few things that come to mind. I guess there's been, there's three things that, that jump out to me. One is um, getting to be a remote designer on Magic because that is not a relationship that they have very frequently. Um, Michael Majors has uh, something similar, I believe, right now, but he at least worked in the office with them for a while before I think he wanted to move back home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm the only person who's had like a fully remote, never worked in person kind of arrangement. And for them to make that uh, sort of accommodation for me um, is, is, is very, very cool. So just, just being in that, just being having the privilege to be in that position basically. Right. And, and for them to think enough of my work to be willing to make that sort of accommodation, even though it's non-traditional for them. Uh, That is something that I think is very cool. Um, I have, uh, recently started as an independent contractor working more with mobile studios, which is a very different genre of game and something I'm not super familiar with. And I'm a bit of a Luddite and I really thought it was going to be a hard fit. Um, but I've, I've gotten to a position now where I'm like turning down work. Um, so that's been very successful and was hard. Like it's, it's really hard feeling like you're a, um, you're well-regarded in this craft and you're going to go into this different adjacent thing, but different likely you're going to embarrass yourself you're like you know um not going to know how to do things that people are going to think is obvious but like it's a growth industry you got to try to diversify your skill set um and to be able to like uh keep the work going uh with those studios has been a lot to me and then lastly going back a fair bit was um i got the reins for the wow ccg um forget what the year was but the game had gone on for a while at this point but the relationship with blizzard was like plainly souring um they didn't like some of our business practices and they were working on hearthstone and Mm -hmm. we know we knew that they like didn't want to have two licensed games out so it was like writing was on the wall 
And one of the ways that they started kind of like poking at us a little bit was screwing around with the loot. I don't know if you remember the loot cards for this game, but I um, do. I played the game a little bit. I remember like uh, ripping boosters and yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, they gave us the spectral tiger, just like the dopest mountain in the game. Mm-hmm. It's worth like a thousand dollars when the set comes out. So obviously just a huge injection for sales. We go from that reality to two years later, they give us a bear mount. Um, mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, here's a cool. And we're like, All right, it kind of sucks, but whatever. I guess, mm-hmm. I guess it's cool. And then a week before the set came out, they released like basically an identical bear in the game that you could buy for $10. So it was like a very like overt sabotage of the loot system in the set, which I know they, they didn't like for different reasons, but like, you know, did you, did you really think it was sabotage or was it like just like bad communication between like the wild devs and there, they, they got to a point where their perspective, and I think reasonably so, I, I don't think it's like inappropriate. It was like, why are we subsidizing this game this way? We've given this, them this incredible license, access to our artists, access to our IP. Why do we also need to be giving them like this like unique loot content to move their boosters? Like this project should be able to stand on the strength of the things we're already providing it. Right. And if it's just a vehicle for, for them to sell loot, like why are we doing this? Right. So, you know, I was not thrilled about the bear thing when it happened, but also I understand the perspective of like from their side, why are we doing it like this? Anyhow, so I'm in charge of like WoW TCG development while um, while this is sort of the, the thing that's going on. And sales and tournament attendance went up in a year where they did that to the loop. And that felt mm. like a real of like, if we do this right, if we like, care about this if we have the hard conversations if we learn like we don't need the loop like we can just make a game we we've talked ourselves into this idea yep. that like we need to have this sort of subsidization to get this game over and it's like no we're smart the game's fun work hard we can do this don't don't care about any of the stack that's going on in that other building just like yeah. locking on what we're doing right now and um that was really I, I i it was a long time ago but that that experience was really gratifying i still have very fond memories of that game i uh I do remember playing the game with uh, a few friends and at this LGS, it was, it was cool. And, and so what you said about the loot is interesting because on the one hand, it's sort of like the loot is a, was a crutch and it was something that you guys didn't really need. But on the other hand, like it also showed that you and the team had kind of like a collective chip on your shoulder. It's like, yeah, we can still do this without, without that to be that being there. Right. Which is, which must be like, like, how I guess the question is like how have you worked like really well in your career as a designer or otherwise like when when you feel like you have you when you feel like slighted or when you have a chip on your shoulder? Definitely. Well, it's, it's less about that, and it's I mean, there's probably some of that, and I just can't identify it or whatever. But a, a bigger part of it is just like we are here for a reason. If they could just hire anyone off the street, and the the game would sell itself or the, the extra bells and whistles like loot would move the product. Then why us? Why get out of bed? Why talk about it? Why play test all day? It's like, we're here for a reason. We have the, we have the capacity to move the needle, whether or not it's enough to like hit our sales goals or make the project sustainable the long term. different conversation. Can't always do that every single time, but we are empowered in our own little fiefdom here to, to do well. So like, why not try and just see what that looks like? Um, I, I find myself more motivated in those kind of circumstances than when it's like, 
oh, the streets are paved with gold and we can just sort of do this and we'll be fine. Yeah. So if this were easy, everyone would be doing it, right? And why us? Someone else would have the job. You know, we're here. They hired us because someone believes in us as designers. Let's like actually embrace that and try to do something good. See what that looks like. How do you maintain your motivation as a designer through good and bad? Mm, I mean, now it's like three kids and a mortgage. To <laughs> you know what I mean? That's it's the like honest the answer, my friend. Yes. The stakes are really high. I mean, for me, I, I guess the motivation is like, I was, I think, technologically behind the, behind the curve 15 years ago. Um, and it's not really an old person's industry. So for me to uh, continue to get work um to have opportunities especially now working with with mobile studios which is like an even younger culture typically and a more tech savvy culture typically i have to excel at the things that i'm charged with um and i i just don't know of that many people who do this work into their 50s and 60s watsi has a few or people approaching that but it's not common yeah. and I would like to be there. I mean, if I continue to enjoy the work and it makes sense or whatever. And, and for Watsi, that's like within magic. So these are like old heads who, you know, they have tenure and, but they're, it's very hard also, I would expect for them to like today, like, okay, let's go do another work on a mobile game or something. It's different, right? Yeah, definitely. So just feeling like in spite of some limitations that like I openly admit, and in spite of, you know, uh, falling on the wrong side of the age curve for where the industry typically trends, um, I want to be part of it. I feel like I have stuff to offer still. I feel like I'm still learning. Um, and that's a lot of motivation. What's your biggest failure as a game designer? And maybe, and maybe a follow-up to that is like, what did you learn from it? So the biggest individual failure that, and I think about this all the time, is like we were arguing about something with WoW TCG. Um, so we had uh, Ogre Heroes in one set they were kind of their own thing and they had more health the next set we were going to have ogre heroes but for the classes and the design lead wanted them to have additional health um like the ogres did in the previous set and i thought it was just like this massive balance challenge that it was going to be derailing that we were going to have to like basically spend an inordinate amount of attention trying to get that right with a high likelihood of failure at the expense of everything else and so we're going back and forth on this and Eventually, I just said, this is my call, and we're not talking about this anymore. And that I considered to have to pull out that card, I, I considered. Were you just like, frustrated to the point where you felt you had to say that, or was it something else? Um, some of it was frustration. Some of it was I thought we were spending too much time on the conversation. Some of it was, um, I, I guess, in, sort of implicitly feeling like I wasn't being heard. Um, but to pull rank like that, like to say we're dropping this conversation because like I'm your boss or I'm in charge of this. Um, it's just really not my style. Um, and I, I still like really disappointed myself that it got to that point. And that was 10 or 12 years ago. I mean, a long time ago, I have some sort of like more generalized, like, I wish I was a little bit, had better attention to detail. I wish, you know, but in terms of like one discrete moment of, of, of feeling um, failure, it, it was definitely that. Okay. But as you said, you know, like you change, people change. So, you know, something you did 10, 12 years ago, you're not the same person now. It's definitely just in the past, right? Yeah. But I didn't even think I was that person then. You know what I mean? Like that was, I felt that was like really out of character. 
um, even at the time, but yeah, um, something to learn from. Like, again, it's just like, you just, the work's too complicated to do it by yourself. You have to pull the best out of everyone. And part of that is fostering an environment where like, even if the buck stops with you, ultimately everyone has a voice, everyone has a seat in the table. I'm not saying that we vote, but like the conversation can't end with you talking about your title versus theirs. And then you, then you've just lost, you failed. I see. Yeah. Now you said one of your proudest moments or points in time is like, you know, working on, on magic, especially remotely. So now that you've had your gig with Watsi, I think it's been for what, like over a year or close to a year? Yeah, I started January of 2020. So we're approaching 18 months. Yeah. So has your has your view of the game or even the processes making the game change at all? Because I expect you're probably like an insider even before joining, like just knowing everything and talking to people. But ha- has it changed? Definitely. Well, I mean, uh, Watsi is a really tight lipped. I mean, it's a button up. Uh, people might not believe this, but like more than half the time that there is a ban announcement, I find out when the public finds out some yeah. amount of time I'm invited in the room and like, I offer my opinion or perspective or whatever, but like, it's really neat to know over there. Like, okay. it, you know, things that go on with organized play, like art. I'm like, I don't see any of it. Yep. I just have my own little dominion that I'm working in. So in 2020, I was like ostensibly working with play design. And just sort of like trying to plug myself in the process and provide value where I could. Watsi's play design process is very different from um, a lot of the sort of final design, play design equivalents that I've worked in the past. And I'm working remotely uh, with other people working in the office. And my like status is sort of this like nebulous thing. Like, is Patrick coming in here because he's supposed to be like, like giving advice and being like a you know what i mean like it's a weird kind of thing right it's it's a weird it's a weird spot yeah so that was sort of an awkward fit um there there were spots where like i was i felt like i was providing a lot of value and times where i felt like i was a a little bit rudderless there was a set that i got to work on where they basically put me on the uh the the set goes from like vision to initial design to play design where they put me on the initial design team so there's a file that exists uh, but the mechanics aren't set in stone. Like, you know, they're reasonably high confidence. They've been vetted a little bit, but it's not like we're for sure going to print with these mechanics the way they are. There's some architecture in the file, but it's like, we're still just like bouncing ideas off of each other. And that's the type of work that I love. And it's um, it's something where it's like, there's like a small team that's working on it rather than, you know, uh, sort of a, a big sprawling team with like a lot of different conversations and, and different things going on at, at once. So we've basically mutually agreed to move me just into that role now. Like I'm just plug and play on initial design teams. Um, I'm on my second team right now. I wrapped up one in uh, the end of March and then beginning of April started this one. And it's just been like awesome. I love the work. I feel like I'm way more efficient than sort of the rudderless play design sort of thing that I was doing before. Um, and uh, you know, the people I work with are great. Like I've, I've just been, um, it, it's been a real uh, upgrade for me doing the work that I'm doing now. It sounds like you've had some good support in making that specific role happen as well. Maybe one part of it is you being like very uh, mature and vocal with what you're looking for, but another part of it is also has got to be the, the support you're getting from above, right? Uh, well, I, I would point to three people specifically: um, Brian Holly and Dan Musser, who are sort of in managerial positions, who I think like correctly identify that the the play design thing was like. It wasn't an ideal fit. 
some of it is like my own aptitude and what I like to do. And some of it is just like being in Denver while everyone else is in Seattle. Um, and then Adam Prozac as being the first person that I sort of worked with on an initial design team and someone who I just collaborate really well with, um, who I think was, was like pretty supportive of the idea of me sort of uh, getting into the initial design rotation. Um, and, and he's someone that I'm working with now. And, um, you know, the three of them definitely, uh, I think identified there was an opportunity to make the process better for them and for me, and then like acted upon making it a reality. So what's one thing about the game that you're, that you now feel like you have better knowledge or insight into after starting at WOTC that you're allowed to talk about? Uh, I mean, the big one, and it, it's so, it's silly to even say, but just like coming from a really competitive background and working on these other games, like Commander is just such a huge deal. And, I was just going to ask you. Yeah, about that. It's like, if yeah. you're not, if you're not, if you're not like, if you don't have that perspective, it's not something where it's like, oh, at, at the last minute we'll do a pass to make sure there's enough commander out of this. Like, uh-huh. no, it's like it's it, it's on the same footing as any of the constructed formats. Maybe not in the way that play design allocates their time because there's just like more agency in shaping a competitive format than shaping commander, let's say. But it, it's just a huge deal, and it can't be like in the back of your mind is a thing to sort of ambiently be thinking about. It's like an active part of the process. And I think, um, you know, like Strixhaven, um, the design lead on that set was like very commander focused, like talked about all the time, uh, pushed back on changes on designs because uh, he had particular commander goals or aspirations in mind. And it was a framework that like, now that, now that I'm like into it, it's, it's second nature but it took a while to get that muscle memory up of you should be thinking about this all the time. So are you a commander guy, like in your, in your personal magic world? Uh, here and there, I I'm kind of soured on um, multiplayer games that have any element of like politics or prisoners dilemma sort of decision-making to them. Just um, the, it's not like my ideal gaming space. I like playing a multiplayer format that we, I don't know if we invented or just found out about it when we were kids was Emperor. Are you familiar with this? Yes. Emperor, I really enjoy it. Maybe maybe you can describe it for those who may not know. uh, So it's three on three. You have an Emperor and two generals, the way that we played. Maybe people have different house rules. Emperors are in the middle and the generals square off. And uh, the... um, uh, one team wins when the opposing emperor is defeated and you cannot engage with the uh, opposing emperor until the general in front of you has been killed. And there's like limited sphere of influence, like uh, an earthquake, let's say damages the person in front of you and next to you, but not everyone at the table. Like there's some weird carve outs for like, how do you resolve all players at the table have something happen to them? But that's a multiplayer game with like very clear parameters the incentives aren't perverse. There's not like this, well, if I kill you, then there's like these next order consequences. So I should wait a little while. I, I'm just like not super into that stuff. Um, but I, I I, mean, I have friends who have like four commander decks. I'm happy to play with like right, right set of people, decks that kind of in roughly the same power level sort of agreement on what the play is supposed to be like. But I think playing commander with like three strangers is not something that's I'm super into. I, I agree with you. Hard agree. Like yeah. I think the, I think I think the thing the thing that we all love about competitive or spiky magic is that the objectives of the game are very clear. 
And it's sort of like me, you know, how when you, when we I used to play Street Fighter and people will complain about like this move is so cheap. Why are you spamming this move? But it doesn't matter because the goal is to win. So it's like right. with with, uh, with EDH, like it's challenging because we all have different conceptions of what fun or winning should be. And so when people have different objectives, it becomes very, very challenging. Yeah, I was talking to someone recently about like if you were talking to a commander player and trying to persuade them to give competitive magic a shot what would be your sales pitch and it's just mm. the the arguments over if cards are okay or not is done there's a ban list that's it no one if you want to play with like whatever no one gives you any flack for it you never have to argue about it there's just a list of rules and that's all anyone cares about yeah instead of like someone plays soul ring on turn one and three people complain about it or whatever <laughs> <laughs> yeah although i guess there are magic players who are more into discussing the ban list and actually enjoying the game but that's another story we'll get into mm. uh yeah so what are your thoughts about you don't have to answer this but what are your thoughts about the criticisms that commander can only be good if it's not actively designed for um i think there is something to the notion that part of the charm comes from these there's all these game pieces it was not designed with this experience in mind and in spite of that, an experience has grown out of it that is really fun. That is, I know this is like corny word to use, but it's it's magical. Like that's a magical thing to have that. And I can appreciate wanting to preserve the authenticity of that experience. And the more that you uh, make content that seems pretty explicitly engineered for it, the more um, that you lose some of that. I think the counter argument to that or the counter perspective is at a certain point, Commander is just like any other format. The cards are what they are. You get used to the play patterns and the experiences. And that underlying architecture, the magic of the non-intentionality, the spontaneity of it, goes away. It's not a perspective you have at a certain point uh, after you've, you've engaged with it long enough. And so having uh, cards come out that are like judiciously catered to that experience in mind I think enriches the experience. Uh, I can understand chipping away at that feeling of authenticity, but I just sort of anecdotally, that's not an experience that's expressed very commonly by people who play the format a lot. Mm. It is for competitive players, for game designers, for sort of like, you know, backseat drivers. Yeah. Um, you know, that perspective that I just said about the, the authenticity of it, that comes up a lot. If you go to a you go to a Grand Prix, you go to an SCG, and you see the Commander players playing, no one's really caring about cares about Leobold. Like, because what's the difference between Leobold and some other like bizarre busted card that's in Legends or Antiquities? Right? They're all they, it all kind of feels fake at a certain point. Right. Um. So it, it's just drawing lines around sort of artificial things that don't really speak to the experience of people who play the format a bunch. How much of magic today do you think is ruined by the over-intellectualizing of magic? Uh, from from like what kind of perspective? Like basically reading into, maybe overly reading into how cards are made. And like now that we have an unprecedented amount of access of like behind the scenes, like this is how play design works. And this is like, these are the chat transcripts, which by the way, Wizards actually releases. So it's like, it's like, don't bite the hand that feeds. It's like, if you're willing to, now that we have so much more information about how magic is made, do you think that the we're overly 
analyzing some of this and maybe not just understanding that, hey, people make mistakes, there are unintended consequences, and nobody really knows what the heck they're doing ultimately. I think that you have that everyone should like ask themselves where they find the joy in things. There are people who uh, read the spoiler before they go and they play in a pre release because they want to know what the cards are, they want to win. Or they're just in, they're excited and they just want to like, want to read. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who go to the pre-release very purposefully not doing that because the experience of being surprised, reading cards for the first time, um, that's what's exciting to them. And I think both of those perspectives are fine as long as you know what you're trying to get out of it and then execute accordingly. I think there are a lot of people who engage with this like saturation of information that you're talking about. And it does not make them happier. It ruins the mystique. Uh, it detracts from the joy of just playing the game. Um, and also they're just like taking in information and opinions from people who have like their own poison perspectives or really aren't like informed or misinformed themselves. Like whatever. There's all these like ways in which it's um, it, it's like not valuable or actionable information. And so I, at times, love to talk about this stuff. Like uh, pretty obviously, right? Like I do yeah. podcasts and YouTube videos. You literally and, like, have articles. a podcast and videos about it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like I obviously love talking about this stuff, but there are times where I do not have the energy for it or that it's a detraction from what actually is bringing me joy out of magic, which is like I built a modern deck. I changed some few cards. I'm excited. Just go play. Don't talk about whether or not like, uh, you know, whatever once upon a time is a good design. Like, just drop that conversation. You don't need to have it. Um, and I just hope that people can, like, sort of make that inquiry about themselves and ask if, like, are you engaging with everything just out of, like, habit? And is some of the stuff that you're engaging with actually making this less fun for you? And would you be happier being, you know, maybe a little bit more ignorant, a little less in the weeds on some of this stuff? Do you think it's people's individual mindsets that's the issue or just the way that social media just exposes us to this bombardment of information all the time and like uncontextualized viewpoints or do you think it's are there things or do you think there are things that wizards can do better to make the game more enjoyable to people like during spoiler season or whatnot i think there's a little bit of all that in play but i also think people are broadly pretty bad at yes i could have this information i could have more in quotes knowledge but having it would actually make me have less fun or inspire less joy. And therefore I'm not going to engage with the information. I just think that there's just like a, there's part of you that just is like, yeah, more information, more knowledge, more perspective, more, whatever. It's like always good, always good, always good, more, 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 more. And there's something like, I remember uh, uh, this is maybe not the best comparison, but um, I remember going to a TV studio for the first time. And we, we had some people come down from, a, it was called Attack of the Show. They, they filmed a little skit about WoW minis at Upper Deck. And it went well. And they said, come up to, you know, come up to LA, come up to Hollywood or where they were. And we'll, 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 you can be here, hang out for a filming. And I went to it. And I just remember, like, the studio was so small. And it was so tight. And uh, the laugh track the um the applause and all that 
was the staff, the people who were like doing camera work and uh, engineering and electrical who were doing it on cue. And they looked miserable as they're like laughing and cheering on whatever. And I left that being, and I wasn't, I wasn't like a fan of the show or anything, but I left thinking, I wish I hadn't seen that. Now, Mm. whenever I see a TV show like this, I'm going to think that studio set's so small, even though it looks big on your television. And when you hear the laughing and cheering, the people doing it are probably miserable. It's probably the worst part of their day. And I would be happier having never seen that, even though, I have more information now. I know how this thing works a little bit better. I have yeah. a different perspective, right? But it, it came at the expense of happiness. Sometimes it's like, okay to not know what's behind the door, you know? It's the production equivalent of never meet your heroes. And, right. uh, and, and I think as applied to social, it's like people don't have like filters in place. Or I, I, I would say I don't even have the discipline to like not force myself to not read something. What I know, <laughs> I, I'll enjoy it less because of that, right? Yeah. yeah, which is something that, if I may seg- segue a little bit, which is something that makes for me the receivables actually really enjoyable because time has passed. You know, like I'm somebody that watched Star Wars Nine like a year after the movie came out because I wanted to avoid the hype train. It, it, you know, like there's so much information out there, but to me, it's like you guys, you and Cedric, have this good um, way to have nostalgia, but at the same time, like not like make it still relevant like it's hard for me to explain why i enjoy it so much despite never having played some of these sets during constructed and what i was not competitive back then or even having missed these entire sets and only like playing the cards later in legacy or modern or whatever it's just and i was thinking for a reason but i i think the closest analogy i can come up with is like you guys are like kind of doing retro album reviews it's like if you went back and reviewed the clash now in 2021 like you're looking at it through a different lens and it's actually kind of refreshing and and because you put your own stories and experience into it it makes it really enjoyable so it feels like a retro album review it's like you know going back and, and and looking at it with a new set of eyes so first of all i just have to ask the question here is like how how did you guys come up with this concept? Because it's it's actually a breath of fresh air, in my opinion. It's all it's all Cedric. I mean, Cedric is like really good at identifying things that are effective, and uh, he has the belief in me that he can just sort of like let me be me, uh, and he can provide the structure and architecture, and uh, it'll be good. Um, so I mean, it's I take zero credit for that. That's that's Cedric's vision. That's Nick Miller's research. Uh, I'm just there kind of filling in the gaps. Sure. You're you're the one third, but I mean, it doesn't work without you because I don't think the show could work with like just Nick and, and Cedric. Like you and Cedric have this sort of um, chemistry over the years. It's just, it's just incredible. Like, uh, like, was it all through SCG or was it like before then you guys have just had working relationships and such? I mean, we were, we were close. Uh, we didn't really have a, like a professional relationship until the SCG stuff started to blossom. Um, but, you know, uh, New Jersey to Ohio is not the biggest uh, distance as far as driving determinants goes. So you end up at the same places, same mutual friends. And uh, yeah, we've always had a, I mean, it's not like we were like best buds off the jump or whatever, but we always got along well. Um, but, you know, he's, he's one of my best friends now. I mean, we, we like talk on the phone most days just about things that are going on so it's I, I not think just that, a work thing 
I think it really shows. Um, it's also rare to hear an MCG podcast where the content feels interdisciplinary. By that, I mean it it involves things outside of magic that isn't forced. Because I know that sometimes like people try to force certain things, like maybe me forcing basketball into this conversation because I really love basketball. But like for you and Cedric, it's like, you know, you, you you make the podcast sound like not overly niche, even though by definition it is because it's about Magic the Gathering. So like, I, I guess the question here is like, maybe it's just how I'm interpreting it, but it's like you two have just really great chemistry. And like, I seem to care about your stories more, even though I don't really know you guys. Uh, like, what, what, why do you, do you have any idea why that might be? Like, I'm, I'm sure you have feedback from other listeners as well as like, that was great. Maybe they can't explain why. So like, what is, have you thought about like what that secret sauce might be between you and him? So I really liked your, um, the, the like retro album review as a comparison. Um, and what I like about that is part of doing a retro uh, album review is this thing came out 20 or 25 or 30 years ago. It's super influential. Uh, let's see how it looks in the context of its time and also with the hindsight that we can then apply things that that album went on to influence next order consequences of it, all of that. And that's some of like some of the more game design sort of centric conversations that we have about the sets. It's like, go back. What was good about this? What was bad? Uh, what did it give inspiration to? Um, which are, what are ways that we sort of wash our hands of what this was about? You know, all that kind of stuff. But there's also something about the, uh, the idea of reviewing an album, which is part of it is like the feeling of being 16 year old and loving something and going back as a 46 year old and looking at that thing and not having the same, like you don't have the same visceral experience, but you have a memory of what it was like to love something when you were 16 and how that is different when you're 21 and 26 and through different contexts and media and, and whatever. And I think that's part of like what we're, what we speak to when we're talking about the tournaments or whatever, there's this like common language that is shared among people who like grinded tournaments, driving around of being threadbare of like the, the heartache of like the bad breaks and the, the joy of winning or your, your, um, your teammates succeeding or whatever that like supersedes the cards. Like there's, there's, it vacillates between like, we're talking about the cards. We're really unpacking the designs and also the cards don't matter. They are just sort of the window dressing on the experience of being at a certain age and time in your life and sharing this experience with people who have the same thing and the same language and, and people who are like having that experience themselves now, like they are, now with COVID, it's different, right? But recent people who are recently grinded, people who hear stories of mine from 2001 and have a sense that that's their life like now or in 2018 or whatever, that it's not, that there's like a common link puts it all together. Um, and I, I think that's what I enjoy most about doing the podcast. And I think the type of feedback we get sort of speaks to that of what's fun is going back and looking but also what's fun is like, it doesn't even really matter what was there the whole time because there was a, the experience was about something different. I think it's, I think you've really managed to articulate that because the reason why it's a great concept is because it's the other half is just like 
being a time machine. And I, and I can really tell that you and Cedric enjoy that. Like you guys are very honest with where you guys were at at that time. Like I was able to glean bits and pieces about your personal lives too, through like what you did during Invasion Block or during like uh, Ravnica or whatever. So that's been really cool. And I also enjoy Cedric just really leaning into his, um, like I was such a different person back then, which is like mm-hmm. factually true. Like, you know, he he says things like, I was a real asshole back then. Like I, I played tournaments just to try to win and I didn't like angle shoot. I didn't, I didn't do anything that was like, over the line but I, I definitely wanted to win and like if you didn't know the rules then f you i'm gonna i'm gonna like get the edge over you you know and a big thing for me was the um how much of my social relationships or the social relationship that i was trying to develop were defined by how good or bad i thought someone was at magic and not even necessarily with the with the interest of like testing with them or extracting value out of it that way just like that being some sort of like benchmark for someone's value as a human being it's so antithetical to how i feel about things now um and but yeah just like cedric says like you know he was a different person back then i certainly was too what's something amazing about cedric that most people don't know about like people that like me that don't really know him privately um there's some stories that i'm not really at like liberty to to dive into for various (laughs) reasons sure but there is like if you are actually in a tight spot like something bad's happening in your life you could not ask for a better person in your corner i mean there's just um i know there's like a certain level of like bombast to him and a sort of like i wouldn't say i you know i wouldn't say a lack of empathy necessarily in his public facing but there's like the sort of like hustle he has culture. a he has a persona too i mean it's yeah it's right not, yeah and as, i don't say that in a bad way you know because i know you right. guys are wrestling fans and stuff like that he has a certain like professional persona which maybe belies himself as a as a as a person and so i was hoping you could maybe speak to that if, yeah or not. just like yeah just like really really um loyal empathetic um just like no limits to what he would would do for the people that he's closest with um and i just don't know if that's like because so much of his uh public facing persona is just like sort of that hustle culture you have control over this sort of stuff like you're you know that sort of it would imply a certain maybe uh ambivalence about uh people suffering or a certain like well you're you know you can dig yourself out of the spot sort of thing and it's like he's a he's like on call yeah. super loyal you know nothing he wouldn't do how many hours in total do you guys think you've worked together like just professionally if it's like scg and podcasting and other things all right so th- let's okay so the average scg show is probably 20 hours of work is i think a reasonable estimate yeah we've comfortably done over 100 of those okay uh so that gets us to you know let's call it 2500 and then you know there's the writing stuff exchanging messages emails or you know i think i think five thousand hours is a reasonable guess maybe more than that okay you you probably spent more time with him than like most people have with their their spouse if they've not been married for very long or with their girlfriend or significant other right that's a that's a lot of time we did two years you know a 2014 2015 i think where we did 37 shows a year 
for two years, just like living in a hotel room together, basically. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like a bunch of other shows besides those two years. So yeah, it's been a lot of time together. What's your favorite memory involving Cedric? Maybe, maybe one that's public so that it, you're not, you know, <laughs> mm. giving anything away that you shouldn't. Single did it happen in SCG memory. commentary or, or what? Or did it just get, or I guess th- those hours are long, so it's hard to say, right? Yeah, I think there's just some like, it's not a single memory, but it's really fascinating to have this experience of like, you're working 20 hours over the course of a weekend, tra- you're flying in, um, you're on air talking to each other like the whole time. Um, and it's like, wouldn't you get sick of this person? But it's like, no, we just go out, we go out to dinner and we just talk about stuff afterwards. Then we go back to the room, and watch a game. We'll talk. It's like, we, we never really, I mean, Cedric has moments of like being a, a kind of on the introverted side and like just needing his own like space and quiet or whatever. But saying that aside, there's been, we, uh, we talk about this all the times that we've had on the road together, all the shows we've done together, we've had one fight. We had exactly one, like, voices were raised and someone had to apologize sort of and other than that it's just been like completely smooth sailing so i i think it's like my favorite memories are just like just like going and getting dinner afterwards and having a really like great conversation about whatever after having spent 12 hours on the air together talking about these matches or whatever it's just um that's that's tough i think most people wouldn't really be tough. able to wouldn't be able to talk to their significant other for 12 hours a day that seems really tough I mean, honestly, I can't believe it. Like, I'm saying this out loud. It does not make sense to me. But, but it's just always been the conversation's always easy. It's There's no friction. And, you know, um, he's like a, a person I've learned a lot from. We have very different perspectives on a lot of different things. But, um, you know, I've, I've learned a ton from him. Yeah. So just to kind of book it in this, Patrick, um, I think I'd be amiss without asking this. Organized play, right? There's been a lot of things happening with OP recently mm-hmm. about the MPL dissolving it. And there's been a lot of good, bad, terrible takes. Um, I, I, I don't know if you guys have released anything official like you and Cedric on the podcast or not. Uh, I definitely would have to listen to it if it, if you did. But what's, um, what are your thoughts about it all? I know it's a super general question, but you can start from anywhere. So I spoke a little bit about this um, at the beginning of the article that I wrote this week on Star City, the salt and satchel thing. Okay. Uh, the Cliff Notes version of that is, I think the MPL was pretty clearly not working from a perspective of dollars in compared to similar organized, like similar dollars in other organized play system against like what the ostensible goals of an esport should be. And I don't know if that space is like, I don't know if it can be fixed for magic, to be frank. Maybe that's overly pessimistic, but like the rule set's really complicated. And then the game, even if you know the rules, doesn't present particularly well compared to like League of Legends or Hearthstone. It's just, it's assumed that you know too much of the art to recognize cards by art to be able to follow what's going on. I'm not sure if these challenges are insurmountable or if like tech can get better, but it's like, it's hard. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to reorient around the local store um, and, and their announcement as intimated as much. Now there's a lot of details that we still don't know about. So it's hard to like say firmly, is this better or worse? And are there going to be like grand prix and pro tours or is it sort of like, is that the end of that sort of organized play? 
kind of up in the air. I mean, they've implied that there's going to be tournaments, but who knows what that's going to look like. But I do think Magic at its root, the, the most fun is like at the store level. It gives a lot of support for different forms of, of play. It gives people like uh, an opportunity to learn the game, um, to experience like um, some like very low level and casual organized play in a way that sort of the like infinite ladder grinding on arena can't really replicate. Um, and it's the sort of thing that like once that experience, once you have that experience of like, you have your community, you have your store, even if you aren't enjoying the cards very much, there's something to keep you coming back. And one of the fears of moving like more and more into a digital platform is, is this experience still good if you're not enjoying the games or once you're not enjoying the games very much anymore, is that where you just check out? And everything that Magic can bake in to give people excuses to keep coming back, reasons to want to check out the new set, um, I think is like really useful. Like it's it's just like a good infrastructure to build up uh, on top of the fact that like, I just think it's, it's really hard to just say like, we're going to have 32 people on camera and that's going to be satisfying for everyone. It's just, you know, like, even if, even if the highest levels of organized play are not as valuable as they used to be, uh, I think that the feeling of like, yes, I could grab the brass ring one day, I could be part of this, um, is a big thing for people to play in organized play. And the NPL was so like explicitly exclusionary that it, if the viewing experience is not particularly good, then what's left, you know? Like, I could never get to the NPL. There's just there's just too few slots, too little rotation, too much work to even try to get there, right? Um, whereas with physical play, yeah, if there's a Grand Prix in Denver, I'll go. And who knows, you know? And then who knows what can happen from there? And I think that's just a system that supports the average player a lot better than um, what they just got away from. Do you think that if we went back to a pre-MPL system where it was just the old Pro Tour, it would still work or do you think that we could do that with some modifications um i think there needs to be some modifications i think organized play has spent too much equity trying to make magic a game you can play for a living and they have explicitly kind of called that out as not a goal of the next organized play system the vast majority of players that i know who would self-identify as very competitive are not trying to do that. What they want to do is feel like they are playing in a tournament that has stakes and that through merit and performance, they have an opportunity to compete at the highest levels. That is it. No one's asking for their plane ticket to be covered. No one's asking for a hotel room. No one's asking to quit their day job. They just want to, the weekend comes around. There's a tournament at my store. There's a tournament 30 minutes away. There's a Grand Prix six hours away, whatever the thing is that I can play, participate in that on a level playing field. And if I do well, I have an opportunity to play somewhere cool for real stakes. And I would love to see, and or I guess my ideal organized play system would be something in the space of an old Pro Tour system uh, or old Grand Prix system type of structure, but way more optimized around giving everyone a little taste rather than 50 players are, are qualified for everything and are getting their flights and hotels comped and everyone else is sort of just like, you know, uh, wasting their time. Gotcha. 
All right, Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. Where to the very last question, where can people find you on social? How do you want to be found? You can find me on Twitter at basic mountain. I have a Facebook, but that's personal. Don't take random friend requests on there. Not on the gram, not doing any TikToks. I guess until Cedric wants to do that for some something or other. But yeah, Twitter, Basic Mountain, YouTube. Uh, there's the receivables and recurring insight. This is my podcast and, and video cities for for Star City Games. Uh, I have a column on Star City Games also every week. Solved in Satchel. You can submit questions for that column or just go ahead and read it. And that's pretty much all the magic stuff I'm up to. Awesome. Well, Patrick, I hope you have a great rest of the day or evening where you are, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk to you next time. Really appreciate your time. This was a lot of fun.